let us hear God's Word, and we're going to read again the Easter story in this Easter season from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and reading from the first verse. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where they laid him. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So the woman hurried from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There you will see me. Then from verse 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. We come to the Easter story. We come to this great commission. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would make your word live for us, to shape us, to transform us, to give us hope. Amen. In the 1930s, in communist Russia, there was a great rally. And at that rally, a famous communist atheist speaker got up and for hours berated religion and its folly and stupidity and how it was untrue. At the end of it, questions were invited. And a frail, elderly, orthodox priest bravely got to his feet, looked at the massive audience and simply said, Christ is risen, to which they responded. I love that story. The resurrection for us is the reason for hope. It is the triumph of God. It's the reason we have joy, and it's the reason we are here on this Lord's day 
the day that he rose, the Sabbath, the Sunday, the third day, to worship. Paul tells us that if there was no resurrection, that our sins would not be forgiven. If there was no resurrection, we would have no hope beyond this life. If there was no resurrection, then we are fools. But the truth is, says Paul, that Christ has risen from the dead. But here's the interesting thing about the end of the gospel of Matthew, and we could see the same thing in the other gospels as well. It tells us that Jesus has risen from the tomb, it's empty, but it doesn't just simply say at that point, right, now you can go home with hope, live your lives, go to church, and know that He's alive, and you have life forever, and your sins forgiven, good night. Rather, all of the gospels end with something else, and it's this. This is where it starts. Because God is going to, from this resurrection point, begin the transformation of all the world that will continue until the day of the new creation when all things are made new and all the tears end and the death ends and everything ends. But it begins right now at this point. And here in Matthew's gospel, we are told right at the end, he brings the disciples back to Galilee where it all started. And on a mountain, he takes them and he commissions them for mission. They saw him. They worshipped him. They had their doubts and their struggles. But then he drew close to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now, here's the thing. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. This is crazy talk. All authority on heaven and earth. This is a guy standing on a mountain in Galilee saying all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Rome is still there. The emperor Tiberius reigns on high. They call him a god and a son of a god and they worship him. He's got legions and his empire is growing and growing and growing. It's not even got to Britain yet. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're building roads all over the place. They're building huge big temples in his honor. Jesus has not even got a little shack in his honor, never mind a church. But all authority on in heaven and earth is given to me. He's got no army. He's got no temple. He's got no organization. He's got no money. He's got no state. He's not even got a church. All he's got is these guys, and here he's saying, we're going to engage in world conquest. <laughs> we're going to engage in world conquest. And here's the thing. He's saying he's already won. There's 11 of them. Maybe there's a few more than 11 by this stage. In fact, Paul says that it was up to 500 people that Jesus had appeared to, but it's still tiny. That's about the same number we had here on Palm Sunday from the, the different churches in Motherwell. Imagine if I had said to the folk that are there, we're going to rule the world. <laughs> we're going we're to engage in world domination. 
over all the billions of people on this planet with just this number of folk. It would be crazy. And yet, here's the thing, they did it. Matthew's writing this account 40 years later. There's maybe a few more than 500 by this stage. There's maybe a few thousand across the Roman world, but it's still a tiny number. And yet, we're reading this gospel of Matthew 2,000 years later, and we know what Matthew didn't know, never mind the guys at the time, there's 2.2 billion people owning the name of Jesus. 2.2 billion, and the whole of Western culture, certainly, if not the whole world, shaped by the mission that he was engaged in. This is what it's about. This is the mission of the risen Lord, and it is given in weakness to the church. Now, there is a sense that Christians now, when ministers start to talk about mission, sigh. And particularly when we start to talk about mission planning, double sigh. You know, we'd rather talk about money or sex or something easy than talk about this because it's, it's difficult stuff. And, and sometimes we're looking at that in the weakness of the Church of Scotland particularly and thinking, well, that would be fine if we had more ministers. That would be fine if we had more members. That would be fine if we had more Sunday school teachers. That would be fine if we had 11 people. Or maybe we look at mission and we think, you know, well, there's the Glow Center next door. That's a center for world mission. We're just a church. What would a church have to do with mission? It's for somebody else. It's for something else. One of the complaints I've heard folk make, and it's got a point to it, as we've been talking about presbytery planning and shaping for ministry and mission, is I've heard folk say, well, that's fine, but let's not forget our own folk, the people that come to church every week, the people that we want to care for. The difficulty with that is it sort of implies that those are two different things, that there's mission work that somebody else does, and then there's us and the folk we know and care for. But what if this, what if mission is not about something that somebody else does, but is actually about us working out how we do what we can where we are? And I want to spend some time over the next weeks before the summer thinking a little bit about mission, but thinking about it not in a sense of something that people do in mission fields, but in actually asking a very down-to-earth question, what about us? Here are the disciples on that hill coming to Jesus. They're worshiping Him. They've got their doubts. I love the fact it says some doubted because that's us too. And Jesus saying, I'm going to use you to do this, and I'm going to be with you as we do it. Go. It's a nice short word, just go. Go into all the world and make disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I see the word go sometimes, and I think that's for people that are going to go to Africa or Spain, or, or somewhere far away. And I think, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to go to Africa. I, I, and maybe some of us are thinking, my days of, of going distances are, are, are over. What does go mean? Well, here's the thing. 
In Luke's gospel, when this same commission is given, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we know from the gospel accounts that some people went to the ends of the earth. Paul was going all the way to Rome, and he wanted to go all the way to Spain, and he he wanted to keep going and traveling and going to different places. But actually, some of the disciples were going to witness in Jerusalem, and some in Judea, and some in Samaria, and some to the ends of the earth. And we might translate that to say, go right here, next door, over there, and to the ends of the earth. Here's something that struck me as I was looking at this. Jesus never did any foreign mission work. In fact, Jesus spent almost his own whole time in, in Galilee. He was spending his whole time in an area that wasn't much bigger than North Lanarkshire. It wasn't even as big as that, I don't think traveling around the places he knew, it would be a bit like saying to us, we're going to have a world mission, and it's going to be about Mother Wool and Wishaw. You know, it's, it's that localized. He never went anywhere major. So, what is, if, if, if to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, actually could be translated Mother Wool, Wishaw, and exotic places like Hamilton? Or what if it meant next door, in the office, in the shops, in my bowling club, and to the ends of the earth? Where is it that we go? Now, all of us have places that we are already gone to, our homes, the people we live with, our families, the people we see, our friends, our neighbors, our workplaces, our school, our bowling clubs. God has already put us in these places. But what does it mean to go? It doesn't necessarily mean to travel, but it means to go to places and just have an expectation that God might use us. I I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was getting really snowed under with presbytery stuff and all the rubbish sometimes that just goes with running churches all the admin tasks and all the things and the people I had to see and the meetings I had to go to, and I was getting like that. And then I had coffee with a young man who's a student next door. He grew up in Afghanistan. He was living as an orphan under the Taliban, and in that least hopeful place of oppression and evil through two quiet missionaries from the other side of the world he found Jesus. I'm not going to tell his story, it's not my story to tell, but as I heard this amazing story my head began to explode because it reminded me of something that I used to believe. Indeed, something I still believe, but I often forget, and it's simply this. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes lives. And if we don't believe that, we'll never do mission. If we don't believe that, I don't know why we're here. Jesus changes lives. 
And if we have got that in our heads, and that is our expectation, as we go and do the ordinary things that we do, it begins to change everything. We don't need a strategy. We don't need a training course. We just need to believe that Jesus changes lives. And by the way, when I came back and I suddenly thought, we're spending our time talking about church finances, church music, or the color of ties at communion, we might just have missed something here. What we are really about. You see, when we forget the big thing that we're about, we begin to obsess and divide and sometimes fight about the little things, the things that really don't matter. Jesus changes lives. It's the best news in the world next to knowing that He's alive. What if we really believed that? What if I went into my normal everyday encounters with my family, my friends, my neighbors, and my colleagues simply with my head saying this, Jesus changes lives, and then asking one question, Lord, what do you want me to do today? You know what I have often found doing ministry of any type is simply this. If you get up in the morning and you say, Lord, show me, He'll show you. And it might be a call to help somebody. It might be a call just to say to somebody who's telling you what's going on, I'll pray. It might be a little place to say when they're talking about what you were doing, I was at church. It might be a little place just to say something that brings God into a situation. Not every day that'll happen. Jesus changes lives, and I want to say to Him, Lord, what do you want me to do today? It can be the smallest of things. A friend, Margaret, stopped going to church many, many years before she walked past the church building where we had a midweek service. Somebody had put a rubbishy poster outside saying there was a midweek service. And somebody saw Margaret and said to her, I'll take you. And it changed things. Jesus changes lives. And it's very often the ordinary little things. Not a course on evangelism, not a mission strategy, not a presbytery document, not something the General Assembly is going to approve in me, but the little thing where we are willing to say, I'll try it. And I'm not talking about the stuff that's way out your comfort zones, folks. I'm talking about the stuff that's just at the edge of it. That's possible. It might be inviting someone to the garden party or some other church event. Or it might be as you're doing something, whatever it is you're involved in, GB or BB or whatever it is you're doing, of simply coming into that normal encounter that you do and saying two things, Jesus changes lives, and what do you want me to do? We had a, a, a breakfast the other morning, a community breakfast. It was good to see many of us there. Uh, and it was good to see many folk coming in. And it, it's fantastic to serve folk. But one of my questions simply with that is, how do we more purposefully say, as we, as, we, as we meet people in that, Jesus changes lives, and what does he want us to do? And that's not a strategy. It's simply an openness. An openness. Go! Well, by the way, if we're going to go, let's just start with prayer. What does Jesus tell them to go and do? He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. You know, the sad thing here is that the church has mainly done the third one, which is we've gone around telling everybody how they should live, how they should behave and what morality means, and we've forgotten about the other two. What does it mean 
to do the other two. First of all, can I just simply say this? The word disciples is really important. Jesus at the end took them back to Galilee to a mountain where He taught them the Sermon on the Mount, where He'd called them, where He'd been with them. And the idea of being a disciple was, was quite, quite, quite usual in Jesus' day. A rabbi would train other rabbis by inviting people to become their disciple, his disciple. And it wouldn't be like going to university and studying a course like we do when we do theology. It would be that they wandered around with the rabbi, they lived with the rabbi, they asked the rabbi questions, they saw what the rabbi was doing, they followed the rabbi, they copied the rabbi until they got to the place where they could be the rabbi. Disciples making disciples was what it was all about. And when Jesus said, follow me to His followers, that's exactly what He was asking them to do. You know this story, don't you? Jesus said, come and follow me and… Yeah, it's already there from Sunday school, isn't it? I will make you fishers of men. The very first thing He said to them was not, come and follow me and I will make you a church member and you will go to church and you will learn some hymns and you will serve tea and you will do those things. It's, I will make you fishers of men. It's absolutely integral to what we are called to do, that we will be disciples who make disciples. And by the way, the word disciple could be translated learner. So, when we start to follow Jesus, we put on our L plates. We are learning stuff. We are learning what it means to be like Jesus. Does anyone feel they need an L plate as a Christian? That's it. You do. Every single day you need an L plate. And by the way, there is no point you take the L plate off. You might have thought these guys that have been with him three years, they've seen the crucifixion, they've heard the resurrection, they're now on the mountain and he's saying, this is the graduation ceremony. Take off your L plates. You can do it now. But no. He says, and we are told in Matthew's gospel that the 11 disciples were there they're still learners, and they're going to carry on being learners. And this is really important for us as Christians. I was talking to some folk we're taking through the new communicants group just now, and I was saying to them, one of the problems we've had in the church before is you go to Sunday school and you learn stuff, you graduate from Sunday school, you do the new communicants class, and you join the church, and that's you, you've done it. Now you just come to church. What garbage! It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you feel like a strong Christian. Only one thing matters. Are you willing to learn more? And I don't mean head knowledge. I mean learn more about God. I mean learn more about His joy. I mean learn more about how it is to be transformed in the Spirit so you become more and more like Jesus. If your answer to that is yes, I know so little. I understand so little. I am so little, but I'm willing to go. Then you're a disciple. And if you think, nah, I've nothing to learn. I'm just happy as I am. Then you're not a disciple. You got it? Let's be disciples of Jesus. By the way, there's no other type of Christian. There's not disciples and other Christians. There's just disciples. That's all that there is to doing this. So that's about disciples. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I would say, see, see these opportunities like the prayer course come. It's not going to be for everybody in the sense that some of you can't possibly come on a Thursday. I get that. You have other commitments. But if you can, come. And if you can't come this time, come to the next thing. Find a way of learning more. 
growing more, praying more. Secondly, Jesus says, make disciples, and he says, then baptize them. Now, this is an interesting thing because that's the point everybody says, well, look, at least that bit's the minister's job. I'm not allowed to baptize people. But you know what baptism really is? Baptism is about when people come and become believers, they have, in a sense, all their other identities wiped out because baptism becomes who they are. Baptism is the thing that makes us part of the church. It signs and seals us as part of the body of Christ so that we don't come and say, well, I'm, there's men and there's women and there's, 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 there's Jew and there's Gentile or there's slave and there's free or there's rich and there's poor or there's, there's, there's yesers or noers or Brexiteers and Remainers or any of these things. We're actually one in Christ Jesus. We're shaped by who we are in Jesus. And in that sense of baptism, it's, about, it's a job for all of us. As we welcome people, as we grow together, as we create this community together, that's what baptism is about. And the third thing is, teach them stuff. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't say, go and teach people things. He says, teach them to obey the things I've commanded you. Sometimes Christians are very good at telling other people how they should live, teaching them things. But that's not what he says. Teach them the things that I have taught you and that you are living out. This is a show me, you know, a tell me. Right? As we live out the gospel, as we allow it to shape our lives, so we begin to pass that on to others. That's what it's about. It's interesting. The early church didn't go around telling people about God's love. They showed them. So that folks said, see these Christians, see how they love one another. The early church didn't go around saying, let me tell you how evil money and materialism and, 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 and out for a reason getting greedy is. They didn't do that at all. They showed them generosity. They showed them sharing. They showed them all that it meant to live a different way. And the early church didn't go around saying sexual ethics is really important. Let us, us protest all the immorality that's going around in Rome. No, they didn't do that at all. They lived out a life among themselves where their women were valued, where their wives and their husbands modeled how it was to live, where they looked after kids in a society which tended to throw kids that were not unwanted on the dung heap. If you didn't want a baby and you had a baby, you literally, dad could say, I don't want this one, and they threw them on a rubbish tip. And the Christians didn't go around saying, that's evil, that's wrong, let's ban that, let's get the state to make that illegal. What did the Christians do? They went and they lifted the children off the rubbish tips and they brought them up and they gave them a hope and a future. And those things changed the Roman world until the gladiator games were banned and until a whole different type of morality became the normal. We live this out and show it in the way that we behave and the way that we are together. This is mission. This is what it's about. And for each one of us, it's the small thing the next thing. Jesus changes lives. Lord, what can I do today in the place that you have sent me to go? See what happens. I'm going to pray just now. I'm going to invite you as you pray to think where you'll be tomorrow. 
to call to mind the people that you will meet this week or you will talk to on the phone or electronically. Do you believe that Jesus changes their lives, can change their lives, wants to change their lives? Oh, Lord, help us to believe that. Lord, show us what we can do. Lord, we pray for the mission of the church. We pray for the big things, for the presbytery plans, for the general assembly when it meets, for the working together of churches in our community. But we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would remind us that we are the church, the disciples, the inviters, the welcomers, the prayers, the carers, the lovers, the servers. Open our hearts, Lord, to recalling the joy of the good news that we have been given that Jesus is alive, that our sins are forgiven, and that we have this hope of eternal life. And we give to you our lives and the ordinary things. And we ask that you would use them. In these days, we pray for our nation. We pray for politicians in difficult times. We pray for Charles, our king, and the whole state apparatus that he represents. We pray that in the words of what may be ancient symbols, there might be prayer. But Lord, we pray for the renewal of every person in this country, in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, for every leader and person who bears responsibility, but also for every parent and carer and neighbor. These things we ask in the name of the Jesus who changes lives and that by His Spirit He might show us how we might serve Him this week. Amen.